please be seated. Good evening to you. Book of Proverbs tonight on our journey through the Scriptures, Genesis to Revelation. We come to Proverbs chapter 6. If you're with us tonight and you don't have a Bible, men are coming up the aisles with Bibles right now. Just wave and get their attention. They'll get a Bible into your hands. And then please, if you don't own a Bible, make that Bible a gift from the Lord to you today. Proverbs chapter 6. Solomon writes, Again, my son, all the way through here, speaking, my children, my son. And it is the voice of our Heavenly Father speaking to us as well. My son, if you become surety for your friend, and surety is to be a co-signer for somebody else's loan uh, or for their debt, to co-sign on uh, a debt, make yourself liable for somebody else's debt in case they're unable to pay, My son, if you become surety for your friend, uh, if you have shaken hands in a pledge for a stranger, so your friend that you're co-signing on the loan for, your friend is mentioned in the first part of verse 1, and then the stranger that's spoken about in the second half of verse 1, that's the loan officer. That's the stranger or the loan company. So he says, if you've done this, You are snared by the words of your mouth. You are taken by the words of your mouth. You're trapped now. Do this in light of the trap that you've set for yourself, my son, and deliver yourself, for you have come into the hand of your friend. Go uh, humble yourself, and the idea is to go prostrate on the ground begging your friend uh, to allow you to back out of this uh, being a surety, plead with your friend. And the Hebrew word for plead there, it has the idea of pleading to the point of being obnoxious. So it's like with great humility and uh, loud pleading, uh, endeavor to get yourself out from uh, under this obligation. Give no sleep to your eyes nor slumber to your eyelids. Deliver yourself like a gazelle from the hand of a hunter. Gazelle does everything it can to escape the hand of a hunter and like the bird from the hand of the fowler. And so here is this warning in the Scriptures, wisdom uh, not to make ourselves liable uh, for someone else's debt uh, in case they're unable to pay. Um, It doesn't mean that We should never be uh, generous to people or helpful if we have the means to help. Um, There are some people who can co-sign on a loan, and if the person who is taking out the loan in the primary position, they default on it, they have the means. It's effortless for them to back the loan, whether it's for a car, whether it's for a home, or whatever it might be. So it's not talking about... Uh, that kind of person. It's talking about the person who co-signs for a loan, and if the person that you're co-signing for were to default on the loan, uh, you recognize that you have no ability to meet that obligation. So um, you would be vulnerable to, not only would they be vulnerable to the loss of everything, but you would be vulnerable as well. So if you can't afford to lend the money uh, yourself, then uh, Solomon is saying maybe you can't afford to be uh, a surety on a loan. So if we, we shouldn't co-sign for a loan, 
that we would not be able to meet the obligation um, if the other person were to fail on that. Now, uh, today, um, if we were to fail on a loan like that, uh, we would be forced to file bankruptcy, and that is a, um, that's a hard enough circumstance and a hard enough situation for a person to go through. In the ancient world, um, it was a lot more complicated than that. To uh, default on a loan meant that you would be thrown into a debtor's prison, and you would be imprisoned and working off that loan for some few dollars a day until the loan is paid off. And so the consequences of defaulting on a loan in the ancient world were even more significant than defaulting on a loan uh, today. So if you can afford to loan, uh, pay the loan if someone defaults and uh, you desire to do that, then that's fine. But if we're not able to do that, then this is a mistake and it's a trap. And he says, deliver yourself as if your life uh, depends upon it. So really, we see in the book of uh, Proverbs the broad uh, subject matter that uh, the Holy Spirit addresses in our lives, and it's just good, solid, practical uh, wisdom. I remember years ago in the church, many, many years ago, a woman came up to me after a Sunday morning service at the back door. I'd never seen her before. And um, she asked if I would co-sign on a loan for a house for her. I'd never seen her in my life. And uh, I freed myself immediately by quoting this passage from the book of Proverbs. I'm going to co-sign on a loan for a house for you. You have no understanding of my finances, do you, at all? I mean, I would put put myself in this place... Uh, exactly, and so I, uh, I escaped by way of this passage. In verse 6, here is a warning against laziness. And so, go to the ant, you sluggard. Now, Solomon isn't calling his son a sluggard. He's just talking to any uh, kind of person that's a lazy uh, kind of person. And says, go to the ant and consider her ways and be wise. And so, the ant is the picture of uh, industriousness, hard work, and, uh, it, and, and the standard for that kind of thing in the ant. And so you want to see what hard work looks like, what an industrious spirit looks like. We go to the ant. We don't go to France. We don't go to some other socialist country or something like that. It's not a cheap shot at France where sometimes things get to a place where a person holds on, uh, jobs uh, begin to be created where uh, people learn how to do the very least possible in order to hold on to that position. That is not the way God wants His people to handle ourselves in terms of, of the work environment and working. And uh, it's just not a wise thing to do. I remember uh, one time talking with somebody and um, and he was he was a member of our board, and he was talking about the corporate world, and that there are sections of the corporate world where it doesn't matter how good the company's doing; it could, they could have made ten billion dollars in profit the year before. They cut off the lower ten percent of of their producers. Just that is their policy. They are going to um, they're not going to tolerate any kind of 
uh, baggage or people saying, well, this is a big company, this is a well-run company, this is a lucrative company, I can begin to coast. They just make a policy of doing that. And I think that certainly in the world where uh, jobs are so valuable, like they are today, they're always valuable, but they're especially, we're conscious of how valuable they are today, uh, that nobody wants to jeopardize that job by being anything less than hardworking. I mean, any of us can lose our job uh, for any number of reasons that have nothing to do with how hard we work or, or not. We certainly don't want to be labeled or uh, noticed by a company as being someone who does the least that they can to get by uh, because that can get you... Uh, pink slipped and on your way out the door. I assume that all of us in this room, I think it's all a part of our childhood, to have spent some time studying the ant and how they got those trails and everything right into your house, up the kitchen table, and then right to the Captain Crunch cereal, you know, or whatever ungodly cereal we were eating growing up, you know. So... But it's interesting to watch. I mean, there's, you never see like one of them off by the side, like having a smoke and taking a break or something like that. I mean, they're just always working. They're talking with each other and boom, boom, boom. They're going like this. It's all happening. It's all moving. And so they're the standard. They're the picture for hard, uh, hard work and, and not being lazy. He says of them, which have no captain, overseer, or ruler. And it's interesting with, uh, ants, if you've ever watched them, you never see supervisor ants. You never see an ant with a whip uh, keeping everyone else in line. The ants are all working hard. Why? It's in them. It's in them to work hard. And part of the Holy Spirit coming into our lives as Christians is that a very strong work ethic is to be in us as a result of that, that we um, should... Anything that is being managed or overseen or you have Christians working in some area of something, you should technically, there should be no need for supervision. You, you shouldn't even need that layer of management in that company or that situation because of the fact that as Christians, we are to have that kind of a work ethic that that isn't even required, just like the ant doesn't have uh, a supervisor level of of management and what they do because each individual ant is doing what it's supposed to do. The ant supplies her suppli- provides her supplies in summer, gathers her food uh, in the harvest. So the ant knows that there's certain seasons of the year in which hard work is required, and then there'll be other seasons in which. Um, you know, if they didn't lay aside the food, then they're going to be in trouble. And, and so they make the most of uh, the opportunity to work hard and to provide for the future. And then Solomon declares, how long will you slumber, O sluggard? Now he starts to talk about the lazy man in contrast with the ant, uh, the man who loves to sleep more. Then he loves to work. When will you rise from your sleep? A little sleep and a little slumber. This guy's always looking for a place to take a nap instead of work. A little folding of the hands to sleep. You've, maybe you've seen it's like a picture of a guy sitting in a chair at a desk and the chair's back. He's folded his hands. It's a picture of someone getting ready to fall asleep or has already fallen asleep. So, again, sleeping instead of working. 
And he said, so shall your poverty come upon you like a prowler and your need like an armed man. And so laziness, it leads to poverty. Nobody should be surprised that if they are a lazy person, you're going to be poor. (laughs) I love the clarity of the Word of God. Let's just say it this way. Listen, if you're a lazy person, you're going to be poor. Don't be shocked when it happens. That's just the way that it operates, and God tells us that. The way to get ahead is not by sleeping or not by uh, being lazy or sleeping when we ought, ought, ought to be working, and, uh, and so uh, we shouldn't be shocked by it. Now, that isn't, isn't to say that uh, all poor people are lazy because that's very, very far uh, from the truth. There are a lot of reasons for poverty that have nothing to do with a person's work ethic, Again, this refers to the person that loves to sleep more than hard work, and they sleep when they should be working. And Solomon says, get out of bed and go to work. And, of course, the Bible teaches both Old New Testament and New Testament that Christians should be the hardest workers in any environment that we are working in in the world. We should be the most industrious, the most uh, valued and prized employees in any company that we are involved in or any business that we're involved in. And uh, and that's what God desires us to be, not only for our own good and our own provision and our own lives and, and not falling into poverty or those kind of things, but also as a witness to the Lord. And we'll see it all the way through the book of Proverbs. God has a very... I mean, it is a... Um, it, he makes mention of it so often that it, it really gets your attention. He has a very, very low uh, tolerance uh, for laziness and an unwillingness uh, to do hard work. And, uh, and we see it over and over again in the book of Proverbs. In the New Testament as well, in Second Thessalonians chapter 3, Paul wrote, For even when we were with you, we commanded you this, that if anyone will not work... Now, will not work is different than cannot work. There are people who cannot work. That's another category. God has a completely different mindset toward that person. It's a, it's a mindset of, and a heart of compassion toward them. But when a person can work can sustain themselves if they will not work. Paul wrote to the church at Thessalonica, neither shall he eat. For we hear that there are some who walk among you in a disorderly manner, not working at all, but they are busybodies. And so the person that expects to not work in life, to sustain themselves and to support themselves, uh, that is a character flaw That's not something that's to be supported by anybody. And one of the great things about how the Holy Spirit deals with it is you'd like to think that there aren't lazy people around. You'd like to think that there aren't lazy people in the body of Christ. Uh, But at Thessalonica, apparently, at least, there were lazy Christians. And Paul said, I've got a solution for that. It's called hunger. And let the hunger pains, don't be feeding them. In, their, in that condition. Let the hunger pains get so great that that's stronger in their life than their tendency toward laziness. And it's a cure for laziness uh, when you're 
uh, on the brink of starving to death. And so apparently there are a certain amount of people in the world that it takes that kind of a motivation to uh, get them to work. And uh, Paul said, go ahead and let that motivation uh, work on them. Don't create a weak person by allowing, uh, supporting a lazy person who will not work, who can't, but, uh, but can work. And then in verse 12, we have a warning against uh, a dis, what's a discord uh, sower. The pers- There's a troublemaker. We use the phrase troublemaker. There are people that are just troublemakers. You put them in any situation, they're going to create trouble. They're going to cause trouble. And it's just in them, they, they're just going to make a mess of things. And, and here's a warning against that kind of, of a person. A worthless person, a wicked man, walks with a perverse mouth. So the, out of his mouth comes perversity. He winks with his eyes and he shuffles his feet. He points with his fingers. And the idea, he's kind of talking about a con man, where the idea is that he's in a certain circumstance, and he's working a person toward a con, and so he'll shuffle his feet or he'll wink or he'll do some kind of a signal to his uh, cohorts that are a part of the scam as well uh, in order to signal to them. Perversity is in his heart. He devises evil continually. He sows discord. There are people that are like this. This is what they do. This is what's inside of them. And therefore his calamity shall come suddenly. Suddenly he shall be broken without remedy. There's no future in this a kind of behavior, being a troublemaker and a con man. And in the context of this con man uh, and these kind of people who are up to something that they're not letting you know because they're trying to work you in some way, the Lord says, these six things the Lord hates. Yes, seven are an abomination to him. A proud look, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that are swift and running to evil, a false witness who speaks lies, and one who sows discord among the brethren. You know what's interesting about that list? Every single one of those sins that the Lord says He hates, every one of them figured prominently in the trial and the crucifixion of Jesus on the day of His crucifixion. There was a bunch of troublemakers and con men and good-for-nothings that came together and put him on that cross. And so the Lord greatly dislikes, he hates these kind of things because what they will do, if they will bring all of these terrible traits together to crucify the very Son of God, then what are they doing, these kind of people doing, to individual people like you and I on a daily basis? One day God will put an end to all of it, but that day isn't here yet. But he makes note of it, and he dislikes the activities of this person very, very much. Then we come to verse 20, and we have another warning against sexual immorality. My son, keep your... Keep your father's command and do not forsake the law of your mother, but bind them continually to your heart. Tie them to your neck. When you roam, they will lead you. When you sleep, they will keep you. When you're awake, they will speak to you. For the commandment is a lamp and the law is a light. 
reproofs of instruction of the way of life and part of this wisdom that uh, Solomon and his wife in raising up, uh, um, you know, his son here that he's speaking to, uh, this was this giving them this wisdom. Part of this wisdom was in order, verse 24, to keep you from the evil woman, the sexually immoral woman. And he describes her from the flattering tongue of the seductress. And so, again, we see the seductress is very, very skilled in the use of words and the use of flattery in order to seduce a man. A man is also very capable of it toward a woman. You can flip the roles and as you read through the book of Proverbs. He said, uh, uh, he said, do not lust after her beauty in your heart. And so the acknowledgement that very often the sexually immoral woman is a very, very beautiful uh, woman and, and she can be very uh, attractive physically, nor let her allure you with her eyelids. And so, so often the use of the eyes, you talk about you can flirt with the eyes, you can um, uh, give a seductive gaze, you can give a come-hither <laughs> look or whatever is the equivalent today, but it's like I'm available, are you interested? I mean, there's a lot that can be spoken through the eyes, and uh, this uh, kind of woman knows how to use her eyes. And then uh, Solomon warns his son of the consequences of giving her himself to the harlot or to the sexually immoral woman. For by means of a harlot, a man is reduced to a crust of bread. He said that you, you get addicted to um, her and get addicted to sexual immorality and you, you will lose all of your wealth paying for her services and you'll, all you'll have is not even a loaf of bread. You'll just have a crust of bread and an adulteress uh, and, and an adulteress will prey upon his precious life. In other words, she, uh, especially a harlot, a prostitute, but a sexually immoral person, uh, so often engages in that activity, um, not just for the physical side of the relationship, but there's an emotional side, there's a mental side, there's a material side, there's a side where a person feels flattered by the attention, this kind of thing. But very often a person will involve themselves with a member of the opposite sex in this way because they have targeted that person and they want to separate uh, from that person some wealth that they have uh, toward themselves. And this kind of a person, I mean, once they get a hold of a person, they're not, they're not going to let that person go until they own everything that that person has or that they can possibly get their uh, hands on. And an adulteress will prey upon his precious life. Can a man take fire into his uh, bosom and his clothes not be burned? Can one walk on hot coals and his feet not get seared? And so here he starts to talk about one of the consequences of sexual immorality is that you're going to incur the significant wrath uh, of her husband in, in adultery. And so you can, uh, if a man involves himself with another um, man's wife, uh, that is a wrath that is produced within the betrayed husband that can't be appeased by anything. The Holy Spirit can come in and work. That's, a, that's not what's being talked about here. But that can't be appeased. 
you're, he's saying, you get into that kind of a relationship, you're playing with fire, and you will get burned. You will get burned because there's another person involved in the relationship in the situation than the one that you're having the sexual relationship with. And he's not going to be very tolerant uh, of what it is that you've done uh, with his wife. And so is he who goes into his neighbor's wife. Whoever touches her shall not be innocent. People do not despise a thief if he steals to satisfy himself when he is starving. Yet when he is found, he must restore sevenfold, and he may have to give up all the substance of his house. So when a, when a, a person steals, becomes a thief, and he's walking through the fruit market and he grabs uh, an ear of corn, he grabs an apple, he grabs a peach or whatever it might be, and he gets caught, people have some understanding for the thief who is uh, steals in order to stay alive. If he gets caught, Solomon says, he still needs to pay a price for being a thief because you can't just have, you know, categories of this is legitimate thievery and this is illegitimate thievery, you know. So you, there has to be the price. But people have compassion on people who are uh, will steal something in order to stay alive. But one thing nobody has compassion or understanding for is when someone goes in and takes another man's wife or a wife takes another man's uh, woman's husband or however that works in your mind for the opposite of it. Whoever commits adultery with a woman lacks understanding, does not know what he is getting into, for he who does so destroys his own soul, wounds and dishonor uh, he will get, might get punched out and worse, and his reproach shall not be wiped away, for jealousy is a husband's fury, and therefore he will not spare in the day of vengeance. He will accept no recompense. There's no uh, silencing that violation, nor will he be appeased, though you give him many gifts. And so a general warning against sexual immorality, against adultery. But uh, we want to be careful in talking about this, that, uh, that if this, if the kingdom of God is, is different in terms of the, the new covenant with Christ. And we can, as Christians, we have a capacity to forgive in a way that the world will never forgive. We have a capacity to give a person a fresh start in a way uh, that the world doesn't know. This is something that comes into our life by the Holy Spirit. And so there can be forgiveness. There can be a fresh start. Um, uh, a husband does not have to do physical harm to a person that has violated him in this way, should not, certainly, as a, as a Christian, do that. So it's not saying that, hey, this legitimizes this kind of thing. It's just saying, in general, you do this, and you get kind of uh, the luck of the draw in terms of the guys out there, and you're going to be in, in deep trouble. And so uh, wisdom teaches us to stay uh, far, far away from it. And then as we come into chapter 7, we have another warning uh, uh, from wisdom to stay away from the immoral woman, the uh, seductress. And in the first five verses, it tells us that our chief uh, protection against uh, involving ourselves with sexual, sexual immorality is a love for God and a love for His Word. 
My son, keep my words. Look at that word, keep. And treasure, there's another word. My commands within you. Keep my commandments and live. And my law as the apple of your eye. Bind them on your fingers. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Let, them, let my word be the thing that controls your doing and your thinking and your feeling. And say to wisdom, you are my sister, and call understanding your nearest kin. Love wisdom as much as you love the, the, your closest family member, that they may keep you from the immoral woman, from the seductress who flatters with her uh, words. And so how powerful the Word of God is for us as God's children and who give the Word of God a proper authority within our lives, the warnings over and over and over again that uh, these things are wrong, don't get close to them, don't in- engage in this way. There's a whole uh, world that we live in uh, and entire cultures within the world where there is, uh, this is just the norm. Sexual immorality is just the way that it is. There is no law of God. There is no recognition of the Bible. There is nothing that's been planted in the human heart to say, wait a second, that's wrong. I mean, in our consciences that we get from God, there's the recognition that that act is wrong. And, but then the Word of God comes alongside and confirms that within our hearts, and it's a safeguard within our lives. And I love the old saying that it takes a passion to conquer a passion. And the, again, the sex drive is a very strong drive. It's a very strong passion. And, and it takes a passion for someone or something greater to say no to that passion. And every single person in this world can have a relationship with God where our passion for God and our love for God is greater than any love or any passion that we have for sexual sin or any sin. And so the Word of God, our relationship with God, an intimate relationship with God, a valued relationship with God, a current relationship with God, a deep relationship with God, this is the greatest protection against uh, uh, falling into the sin of sexual immorality and really of any Sin, And then he describes in verse 6, Solomon does something that he had evidently seen from his palace wall of uh, a victim, uh, a young man becoming a victim to uh, a, a prostitute or a sexually immoral woman. He said, for at the window of my house I looked through my lattice and I saw among the simple, I perceived among the youths a man, young man, devoid of understanding. And he's passing along the street near her corner where this uh, sexually immoral woman is. And he took the path to her house in the twilight, in the evening, in the black and, and dark night. So here's a guy, uh, a young man, who is not, he's not trying to find this woman. Uh, he's not operating under the influence of lust. He's just like a small-town boy that has come to San Francisco or New York or Chicago or you name the city. And he's had a simple life and he's had a pure life, wonderfully so. 
But now he comes into this new place that he is. He doesn't even know uh, a prostitute from anything, from a manhole cover. He doesn't know anything and doesn't even know these kind of people exist. It's nothing he's known in his whole life. And so he just decides to go down this street to get from here to there, and there she is. She's waiting for him. And so Solomon takes, and I tell you, we've talked about it already, but there are so many things that we wish that we didn't have to warn our children about or tell them about, and we certainly could wish that we didn't have to tell them at so young an age or whatever, but sometimes you've got to factor in the environment that we're in and the environment of the age, the environment of the city, and what do we have to warn our children about in order for them to be protected so that they don't come face-to-face with something, some temptation that they never even knew existed, let alone how to navigate it in a proper way. And so Solomon is describing a young man who hasn't been properly prepared uh, for running into this gal, and, uh, and, and it's going to become uh, very difficult for him. Her tactics are there, and there a woman met him with the attire of a harlot and a crafty heart. And so she's dressed like a, a prostitute, very sensual, uh, very re- revealing. Um, harlots know how to uh, get attention. They know how to... Um, draw attention to themselves sexually. And, uh, and, and sexually immoral people do of both kinds. They know how to... She's just basically trolling, not for fish. She's just trolling for a, a guy, you know. I mean, you've seen, the, you know, documentaries or you've seen something maybe on the news or whatever and you see like all the prostitutes are lined up on a particular um, uh, street or something like that. It's, it's, it's not like... Um, who you meet at church. This is a completely different attire that they're wearing, and it's, and it's a deliberate attire to kind of uh, entice men to them. And so I think it certainly says something uh, to women about, um, you know, how we dress. And uh, the harlot knows how to use her dress to uh, attract attention in this kind of a way. And because she wants that attention, she's going to make money off of it or she's got some other reason related to it. But one of the saddest things is to watch somebody who, uh, typically a young girl or really any young woman who uh, dresses very immodestly, very poorly, and has no idea that you're getting attention you don't want to get. Why are you creating this kind of trouble for you? Here you are, you're in the 7th grade, 8th grade, ninth grade, 10th grade, and you're dressing in a way that you're going to draw all of the wrong people into your kind of life to get attention, the wrong kind of attention. I've never been able to figure it out. I don't know women very well. I don't. I've never understood. Do they? Are they doing that on purpose? And because... You know, they want to do that. They, you know, they, they do want a sexual relationship or they, are they doing that just because they're, they're dumb and they have no idea about what men are like and what they think when they see somebody like that? Maybe I'll get it figured out in heaven. I don't think that I will. It's probably a combination of, uh, of both. But sometimes I do wonder. I drive down the street and I see someone, a, a, a young girl and, 
uh, and she can be very, very beautiful. God has blessed her as a very beautiful, and she's dressed in what? And it's a Friday or Saturday night in whatever town, and I just look and I say, God, protect her. She is going to have 50 guys, 50 of the wrong guys in the whole city uh, are going to, she's got their their attention, and man, what problems she is making for herself. Who let her out of the house looking like that? And so, with the attire of a harlot and a crafty heart, uh, she knows what she's doing. She was loud and rebellious. Her feet would not stay at home, so she's very uh, self-confident, self-assured. There's no humility or shyness about her. I'd love to see shyness make a comeback, by the way. That's sweet. And it's, it's present in a lot of people. That's one of the most beautiful things to see in a young person is to see shyness and to see uh, innocence. And she, knows, she doesn't know anything about that anymore. At times she was outside at times in the open square lurking at every corner. So she's just looking for anyone or everyone. And so she catches him because she comes down the street and she kissed him. And with an impudent face, she has said to him. So, I mean, she comes on very, very strong, kisses him, gets the whole ball rolling before he knows what uh, can hit, you know, been swept off of his feet. And then she says to him, I have made, I have peace offerings with me. Today I have made my vows. So here she is. She's religious, but she's not born again. A peace offering was something that you offered to the Lord at the temple, and a portion of it would be given to God, burned upon the bronze altar. A portion would then be given to the worshiper to take home to eat. And the idea was that God is eating a part of this meat. You are eating a part of this meat. The same thing is now a part of both of your lives. And so there is this communion between a person and God. And it was a way of a person saying, God, I want to have a close relationship with you, an intimate relationship with you. I want to be one with you in a beautiful spiritual way. And she had offered that sacrifice. She obviously, she's not walking with the Lord. This is just a religious exercise with her. But she lets him know that, hey, I've made my peace offerings. I've paid my vows. In other words, I'm not only offering you, uh, you know, a night with me, but I'm offering you meat. I'm offering you a good meal as a result. So she's got the whole thing laid out. And so I came out to meet you diligently to seek your face, and I have found you. And here's, a, here's flattery. You're the one I've been looking for all of my life. Liar! Liar! For those of you who know the movie, it's a complete lie. She would have taken anybody that came down the road, but she tries to make him feel like, where have you been all of my life? I've been waiting for you. And so I found you. I have spread my bed with tapestry, colored coverings of Egyptian linen. I have perfumed my bed with myrrh and aloes and cinnamon. Come, let us take our fill of love until the morning. Let us delight ourselves with love, and then she gives the reassurance that uh, they won't be caught. For my husband is not at home. He's gone on a long journey. He has taken a bag of money with him, and he will come home on an appointed day. And her enticing, with her enticing speech, she caused him to yield, and with her flattering lips, she seduced him. And so uh, he falls uh, for this, 
Instead of running, he falls for the trap. It's a very, very real trap. And Solomon said immediately he goes after her as an ox goes to the slaughter. He's talking to his son. And our Father, our Heavenly Father, is talking to his children in this room tonight. And Solomon said to his son, Now, son, if you ever fall for this woman's trap, I want one picture to come into your mind. And that is a man with a rope leading an ox to the slaughter. Because if you fall for this, that's exactly what's going to happen in your life. So you got the picture in your mind. You got the ox. Doesn't he big, just a big, stupid, dopey ox, right? You got the ox there and he's being led and the ox is oblivious. The destruction is right around the corner for him. And Solomon says, I want that to be the picture that comes into your mind every time you see that kind of woman trying to do her seduction on you. And I'll tell you, it's valuable. Immediately he went out after her as an ox goes to the slaughter or as a fool to the correction of the stocks. It all ends up in bondage. And then he says further, it ends up in death. Till an arrow struck his liver as a bird hastens to the snare. He did not know that it would cost him his life. Now, therefore, listen to me, my children. Pay attention to the words of my mouth. Do not let your heart turn aside to her ways. Do not stray into her paths, for she has cast down many wounded. She has never, ever, ever, ever made life better for one person in history. And all who were slain by her were strong men, stronger than you. Just one time, just one time, her house is the way to hell, descending to the chambers of death. That is where her, her path leads to. It leads to death. It leads to hell. It is one of the many paths that lead to that. And sexual immorality is a sin that leads people away from God and um, into uh, destruction. Then in chapter 8, uh, we have in contrast to this former woman, we have wisdom now again personified as a woman and her invitation to mankind uh, to come to her. So again, wisdom's invitation. Does not wisdom cry out and understanding lift up her voice? She takes her stand on the top of a high hill beside the way where the paths meet. She cries out at the gates, at the entry of the city, at the entrance of the door. In other words, wisdom is all over the place calling men and women to her. To you, O men, I call, and my voice is to the sons of men. And so wisdom is, the wisdom here speaks of the wisdom of God. And we see that this wisdom doesn't wait for men uh, to come to her, but she seeks men out. Even as the Bible says concerning the wisdom of salvation, how to be saved in Christ, that God didn't wait for us to come to Him to learn the gospel, but that He has sent the gospel out into the world through uh, preaching of the gospel. God has sought 
to uh, reach, uh, reach out to us. So she has the same heart of the Lord. She cries out to men, she and women. She goes out to where they are. She seeks them. And a beautiful picture of the heart of wisdom uh, for uh, for um, you know human beings and and the desire of wisdom, you think about how God wants everyone to be living in his uh, wisdom and enjoying the blessings of of all of that life. Oh, you simple ones, uh, understand prudence, and so this is what she promises to deliver if we 'll listen to her to the simple person that will supply us with prudence. And you fools will be an understanding heart. I mean, she supplies us with a wisdom and an understanding that we would never otherwise have apart from God's Word and her voice. Listen, for I will speak of excellent things, and from the opening of my lips will come right things. God's wisdom is always right about everything. For my mouth shall speak, will speak truth. Wickedness is an abomination to my lips. We never have to worry about that with God's wisdom that we're ever going to be drawn into wickedness. All of the words of my mouth are righteousness. That is their right. Nothing crooked or perverse is in them. They are all plain to him who understands and right to those who find knowledge. Receive my instruction and not silver and knowledge rather than choice gold for wisdom is better than rubies. Wow, I've never had a ruby, but I've had God's wisdom. You could go out in that parking lot as God is my witness. I know I speak for many of you. You could pile all of the diamonds and all of the gold and all of the jewels of the whole world into a pile a mile high and say, all of that is yours if you will walk away from God's wisdom and for the rest of your life fail to be able to live life as God intends life to be lived. I would turn my back on that in a nanosecond. There wouldn't be any weighing of it at all. I can't live life without God's wisdom anymore. I can't do it. I've been spoiled by it. If I went back into the world, I'd be dead in two weeks. I don't know of what, but I wouldn't survive out there. And it's wonderful. And it's not because all of that stuff doesn't have value. It's because God has done a work of His Spirit in our lives that has taught us about how valuable His wisdom is and how precious His wisdom has become to us, the sense of privilege of being able to live the Christian life that we get to live. Nothing compares to it. For wisdom is better than rubies, verse 11, and all the things one may desire cannot be compared with her. I, wisdom, dwell with prudence and find out knowledge and discretion. And here, uh, discretion and prudence is talking about kind of the nitty-gritty daily um, 
decisions that need to be made in life in order to live life well. God gives that to us. He doesn't just give us the wisdom about how to be saved and end up in heaven one day or how to avoid the major catastrophes in life. God gives us wisdom all the way down to these little fine areas in life on how to navigate them and, and, and how to handle them. And wisdom provides us uh, with that. If God didn't give us instruction on small things, then we would feel like, all right, this is up to us. We can do whatever we want here. Then it would become a big thing, and then he'd have to give us wisdom. So he gives us wisdom related to everything. The fear of the Lord is to hate evil, and wisdom gives us a fear of the Lord. Pride and arrogance and the evil way and the perverse mouth I hate. Wisdom says, counsel is mine and sound wisdom. I am understanding and uh, I am understanding. I have strength. By By me, kings reign. So it's wisdom not only for the small things in life, but God's wisdom can provide us with what we need to be successful all the way to becoming a king. Who would want to be a king? I'm not, it's a rhetorical question, but I realize this, once I said it, that there might be 20 people that would say, yes, are you offering something to us tonight? Who would want to be the president of the United States? Who would want the headaches of all of that? And yet, whatever God calls us to, whatever the position is, this wisdom that God gives in his word will allow us to be successful in that place. By me, kings reign and rulers decree justice. By me, princes rule and nobles, all the judges of the earth. I love those who love me, and those who seek me diligently will find me. Riches and honor are with me. So you can get riches in this world without God's wisdom, but you can't get riches and honor. Wisdom supplies that. Riches and honor are with me, enduring riches and righteousness. My fruit is better than gold, yes, than fine gold, and my revenue than choice silver. I traverse the way of righteousness in the midst of the paths of justice, that I may cause those who love me to inherit wealth, that I may fill their treasuries. And so it is God's way, his wisdom is the way of riches, it is the way of honor, it is the way of prosperity. The Lord possessed me at the beginning of his ways, his way before his works of old. And so Solomon begins to talk about how wisdom was around before creation, it was around during creation, it's around after creation. And so God's wisdom around before creation. The Lord possessed me at the beginning of his way, before his works of old. I have been established from everlasting, from the beginning, before there was an earth. Talk about wisdom being time-tested. It's so goofy, these things. I remember when I was in school, and um, uh, especially in junior high, it's called middle school now, but middle school and also in high school, they tried so many. Just in that little six-year window, they tried so many different things with education. Now we're going to... 
we're going to do it this way, and then now we're going to do it this way, and we're going to have a learning this thing and that, and it's all these things that we're being, you know, tried out all of the time. And, of course, the world that we live in, it's just one big experiment for let's try this, let's try this, let's try this. Oh, that blew up, and a million people are dead, or this blew up, and everybody's addicted to this, and they're a casualty of the sin, and that didn't work out so well. These people, they, they, they either have no conscience or no heart. They just, you have to give them credit. They are supremely confident. They will abandon that, and then this is the new big idea in terms of wisdom, and then this gets foisted on everyone. Everyone attaches to that thing until enough people crash and burn that it is uh, tarnished, and everybody recognizes it for the folly that it is, and then it gets replaced by something else, and on and on and on and on it goes. And the Word of God, though, it's been around a long time. God's wisdom has been tested by human beings for thousands of years. And it always produces the same quality in a human life. It is the way to live. When there were no depths, I was brought forth. When there were no fountains abounding with water, before the mountains were settled, before the hills, I was brought forth. While as yet he, that is God, uh, had not made the earth or the fields or the primal dust of the world. Wisdom was in existence before creation. Where were you before creation? Ah. A gleam in my mother's eye? No, we're further back than that. Uh. We were nowhere to be found. This wisdom has been around a long time. And uh, plenty of time to show whether it's true or whether it's folly. And it always produces the greatest life a person can live. When he, that is God, prepared the heavens, here is creation itself. I was there. When he drew a circle on the face of the deep, when he established the clouds above, when he strengthened the fountains of the deep, when he assigned to the sea its limits so that the waters would not transgress his command, when he marked out the foundations of the earth, when I was... Then I was beside him as a master craftsman. I was daily his delight, rejoicing always before him, rejoicing in his inhabited world, and my delight was in the sons of men. He was a, this wisdom was around during creation. Again, we talked about it last week, but this creation is a marvel of design and wisdom. And this wisdom is available to us as well. And then... As a result of this, God's wisdom should be heeded. And so wisdom cries out to us, Now, therefore, listen to me, my children, for blessed are those who keep my ways. Anybody say amen to that? Amen. Blessed are those who keep my ways. Hear instruction and be wise and do not disdain it. Blessed is the man who listens to me watching daily at my gates, waiting at the posts of my doors. No better place to do that than to read the Word of God. For whoever finds me finds life, and that's the truth, and obtains favor from the Lord. But he who sins against me wrongs his own soul. All those who hate me love death. 
And so the beautiful cry of wisdom out to bring us into the beauty and the quality of life that God has intended for us. Well, we'll stop there tonight and ask the worship team to come forward. I'd like to just worship the Lord a little bit tonight and give praise to the Lord for His wisdom and what it has produced within our lives. Where would you be without the Bible tonight? Where would you be without God's wisdom? Oh, I shudder to think about it. I don't want to know. So you say, why do you raise the question? I don't know. It just came to my mind. But we know enough that we don't want to know. And it makes us thankful. Lord, however many years you've walked with the Lord, for me it's been since 1980. And I think, wow, if I had used those however many years that is, I can't do math on Sunday nights, I'm fried. What if I had spent all of those years going in a different direction than going deeper and deeper and deeper into his wisdom and the life that's found there? So much to be thankful for tonight, for the Lord and his wisdom, and that he sought us out until our eyes would open themselves up to him and allow him to come into our hearts by trusting in his Son how faithful and diligent the Lord was to not let us go in our folly, but to bring us into his wisdom. So much to be thankful for tonight. Let's give him praise and honor and glory.